You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Elton Town and Jones. Hi, I'm Paul Ebbs. And I I promised the listeners last week that this week we'd be back to normal. But no, another opportunity came up and it was another one that was too good to resist. So here I am exploiting another opportunity. And the thing is, Elton and Paul, they're both chaps with Doctor Who stroke sci-fi connections who it was worth my while getting on the podcast. They're both interesting chaps, and they've both got books out that we can talk about and that are very much worth talking about for reasons that we'll go into later in the podcast. But I thought I'd do another one of my irregular top ten things by getting these chaps between them to choose their top ten Doctor Who stories as well as talking about all the other stuff. So we will, in a little while, get into each of your top five Doctor Who stories which neither of you have told me, so I have no idea what to expect. <laughs> but first, let's find out a little bit about each of you. And Elton, one of the reasons why I thought you were worth getting on here, you're a playwright, and your yes. last play, I don't know whether you can talk about what you're working about now, what you're working yeah, on now. Can, and, yeah. But your la- let's talk a little bit about your last play, first of all, because that is very definitely a reason why you should be here on this podcast. What was it? How did it come about? And how was it? <laughs> uh, yeah, basically, my production company, um, Dyad Productions, uh, we produced um, a touring solo show. That's a one-man play of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Um, it's been very successful, I'm, I'm pleased to say. Um, so you Basically, I just wanted to go back to the original text um, and update it a little bit to some of our mod- more uh, modern concerns. Things like, uh, well, you, you know, the, the current situation in terms of Brexit and Trump and the general sense of, oh, my God, where are we going? <laughs> um, and, and so I could sort of embellish Wells's original with um, some of the information he didn't have in 1895 that we do have in 2018. And uh, and sort of take it from there, but it's been it's been a great success. It's, it was actually our ninth production in nine years. So uh, yeah, I, I obviously stole a few uh, Doctor Who moments to sling in there for the, <laughs> the party faithful, shall we say? Um, but yeah, it's it's been great. A, a brilliant actor called Stephen Cunningham doing a a sort of. Um, how can I put it? A sort of Matt Smith, David Tennant, William Hartnell kind of turn. Although I have to admit, I probably based the character more on um, the writer Alan Garner, who I, th- I thought was um, a-, a great example of someone who moved from manic intensity to, to moody uh, introspection uh, at the turn of a needle, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what I've been up to. How did it work as a solo you know one-man performance then was that a difficult thing to do or did that come quite easily um yeah it was i mean you know i I suppose experience means that once you crack what it is you're trying to achieve it becomes fairly easy but um, i'm a very slow worker um i i i think really because i also direct the show's 
I kind of, when I'm writing it and planning these things, I tend to know where I'm going. I, I kind of see the writing as um, preliminary work for the direction almost. And, and when I'm directing, I see the directing as an extension of the writing. So I'm sort of passing the baton between myself, selves. Um, it, 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 the, the, the difficult thing to achieve was that um, the book itself is based in a kind of salon. So you you have to, not a hairdressing salon, a salon <laughs> of scientists uh, who are sitting talking about the time traveller um, who then tells his story within the recounting of that. Um, but I wanted to do it all first person. So the traveller arrives at the beginning of the show, having come back from his great adventure with the Morlocks and so on in the future. He recounts that story, um, embodying various characters and moments, supported by an incredible soundscape from a, a chap called Danny Bright and wonderful lights from Martin Tucker, who's also a, a, a great Doctor Who fan. Um, and um, we then sort of take the audience with the time traveler into the next level, which is the sort of um, Frontios style end of the world. Um, and uh, give it a very downbeat and apocalyptic ending. Uh, the sort of tagline of the show is, can we change the future? Uh, and uh, and the show doesn't pretend to um, answer that in any way, but it leaves the audience with, with that question as they leave, I hope. Well, and it's a classic. It's a classic story that lends itself to being sort of mm. moulded into what the the writer, the director, the, the shape you want to mould it into. The stuff you were saying about Brexit, I could see absolutely how that would have worked in the time machine. Yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, I'm able to talk about these things now because it's been on the show, on the show, on the road for quite a while. But we, th there is a great moment in the original novella where the time traveller, just before he manages to get back to his own time, he's, he's sitting there pondering his initial um, summary of, of the kind of civilization he was, um, he had become part of. So his original idea was that it was a utopia and there were lots of people lazing around having a lovely time. But then the darkness of the adventure unfolds and he discovers that, no, these people are in fact being farmed and eaten by the Morlocks. And there's been a bifurcation of, of the human species that hasn't gone very well. And and he he worries about the future and he realizes that he has a part to play in, wh in whether or not that future comes into being, should he ever get back to his time. And, and what, what I do in the show is I, I basically challenge the audience. Um, and, and so while he's going through this reevaluation of, of where he has come, he basically turns to the audience and says, look, well, couldn't you see the signs? Weren't they there for intelligent people to see? And he points the accusing finger at pretty much every member of the audience says, of the audience and says, welcome to your future. <laughs> Nicely done. Now, you said you can talk about what you've got coming up. So do you want to say what that is? Yes, it, it's kind of relative to something we'll mention later on. But um, okay. it's, it's been peppered as an Easter egg throughout throughout um, the book I've got out of the minute. But, um, yeah, I'm working on... It, it, it simply put simply, I was trying to I was trying to work out which show to do next. I had three books on a short list that I wanted to adapt. There was no time to write an original play. There never is, um, and so I wanted to do Virginia Woolf's Orlando, 
which um, I don't know if you know it, JR, but it's, it, it's a very topical really right now. It was written in 1928 and it's the sort of um, picaresque adventures of a young man in the um, uh, in, in Elizabethan England. And um, what gradually happens is you realise the character is almost immortal because it comes up to present day. Um, and this character takes on a sort of Forrest Gump, Zelig type presence. Right, yeah. But halfway through, um, he regenerates into a woman. Oh, <laughs> and, wow. <laughs> and so towards the last third of the book, you have um, this character who's passing backwards and forwards from being a man and a woman. And not re- the, the whole thing is, is a debate about sexuality and gender. Yeah. And I think that's um, something that's you know very important right now. And it's a debate we're having you know, in many spheres at the moment as to how we perceive um, members of the opposite sex or different gender choices and so on. Um, and so, again, I, I've tried to manoeuvre that work to fit the current debate. One thing I've tried to do with Orlando that the book doesn't do, I've tried to take it a step further, which is never to really refer to the character's um, sex as he or she or his or her, so that there's a kind of debate going on in the audience's head rather than in the play itself, which is a, a great comedy and a great adventure. But to have the audience wondering constantly, what am I seeing now? Am I is the character a man or is it a woman? I don't know. And obviously, ultimately, the, the punchline to all that is it doesn't matter. Yes, it really doesn't matter. Am I imagining it? Wasn't there a film of that with Tilda Swinton? Twenty years. Was, ago. Yes, was, was it? Yes. Yes, yes. I'm not imagining. I, I I must have seen that about twenty years ago, and I've obviously, as with the time machine and any of the other adaptations I do, I, I just don't look at these things. Um, you know, when I'm writing the show yeah. or producing it, so it'll be a long time before I see that again, Jr. I think <laughs> it's only now. I'm I'm very excited to be able to pick up. Um, Stephen Baxter's official sequel to The Time Machine, which I think is called The Time Ships. I bought that a couple of years ago when I knew I was going to be doing The Time Machine and I really wanted to read it and was, you know, sitting on my hands saying, no, you can't. So now I can. So these things are a relief once you get them out of the way. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Look, we've been hogging it and we've been ignoring Paul, so let's bring Paul Paul. in. (laughs) Sorry, Paul. Sorry. I've just been thinking about a time-travelling hairdresser. I think you should do that next. <laughs> In French. Paul! <laughs> I don't know why that suddenly came up. <laughs> but, Paul, one of the reasons people will know your name uh, in the worlds of Doctor Who is because of the Book of the Still. Hey. Which was one of the BBC books that you wrote. It it, I, I did. That's what I wrote. Well, how did that come about, and what was the experience like? Uh, a vastly positive experience, really. Um, I'd, 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 I, I'm a Doctor Who fan, like, um, like we all are here. We're, we're all friends together <laughs> in that, uh, in that, in that world. Um, uh, and I, I, and I've, 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 I'd always wanted to be a writer. Uh, I was doing my own stuff. I had my own audio production company, an amateur audio production company, um, back in the late 90s, and we were doing our own. Um, this was before Big Finish. We were doing, um, or as Big Finish were just starting, we yeah. were doing our own 
um, audio productions. That was season 27. Um, and Doctor Who stories that I wrote. And I'd written a couple of other Doctor Who audio things for an American group called um, Everlasting Films. Um, and so I was, I, was, I was into the idea of, of, of writing. I was working as a nurse at the time, um, a psychiatric nurse in Essex. Uh, but I really, you know, what I really wanted to be was a writer. So I, I did some writing. Um, and basically, you know, you, you get to meet people, you get to talk to people and you get to make connections. And I wrote a short story, um, called two hearts beat as one, um, which ended up, um, getting my name, um, on a desk at the BBC, I guess. Um, it didn't make the cut into short trips, uh, but I suppose it got my name uh, in there. And so uh, when I got together with a guy called Richard Jones, who I knew um, from Essex, and we kicked some ideas around, and we came up for the story for the Book of the Steel, Richard then, for I think for personal reasons, he couldn't, he couldn't commit to the project. Um, so I ended up um, uh, talking to the BBC, and that became that became a book. And I uh, I, I did a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for a pitch for it. I liked the idea. I did a I did a uh, a chapter breakdown, and it became a book. And it was a it was an excellent experience. It really it really really was. I mean, it was. I mean, Justin was the editor. He was he was very good. Uh, Justin Richards, that is. Um, it didn't need that much rewriting as well i remember that as well i think the the notes that came back to me for the whole book there's about 33 notes which having worked since then in tv finding that you'll get 33 notes per scene sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> especially when you're working um on a continuing drama um that I, I i look back on my time writing the book of the still as a well actually that was a, a remarkably fun and easy job yeah Speaking of working in TV and writing mm. novels, the things yeah. you, I don't think we can talk about the things you're working on at the moment, but at the no, moment, I think it's probably fair to say you're more in novels than you are in TV. But what at the moment, the, yes. Yeah. But what are the differences and what are the experience, you know, the differences in the experiences and which do you prefer? I, 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 I had a feeling you were going to ask that. <laughs> I, 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 I know when actors, and I'm sure Elton, relates to this yeah. is you know they're always asked what do you prefer film or telly um or, or stage or or, yeah, or, yeah. or film and to me it's it's writing it each has its particular skill screenwriting um is a, has a particular skill you have to think visually you have to cut your dialogue um to to very spare limits you have to all every scene the, the one thing that, that that i will do in 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 screenwriting is i will try to i will try to construct a scene that needs no dialogue and yeah. then and then add dialogue to it because the more people more people are speaking the more they're not concentrating on what the, you know what they're looking at so i try to keep things very spare in the dialogue you can't always do that just on that you know, note i'll just put yeah. in for just the briefest of seconds to illustrate something i once worked on a project i had to write a screenplay uh, the project never happened i mean i don't think it uh, was ever going to happen but you know you do these things and at the end of it i realized that i had about 240 pages worth of script and it would have been a four-hour movie and that was entirely because of the dialogue it has yeah. to go yeah i mean i mean the dialogue is 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 
the only time you ever need dialogue is if, if you can't explain it in pictures. Yeah. So that's that's for me for for, for cinema. Television slightly different because you're dealing with a, a different medium that's 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 a mix of your visuals and your and your character, um, and so there's there's a little you know by by um, by by that I mean there's more there's more dialogue needed in in a TV thing. But when you're writing prose, you were asking about the differences. Um, I t- I tend to write like I'm writing a film. There'll be, I'm I'm uh, there'll be a lot less dialogue there will be passages of dialogue um when things when action needs to to be speeded up or you need to get some information but really what i what i try to do with the prose is paint pictures with yeah. the prose as well i suppose that's the, that's the that's the screenwriter in me paint pictures and do the things that you can't do in a film which is look at people's you know internal thought processes so i'm i'm more interested in those so those, those are the differences everything is visual pretty much with screenwriting and tv is a mixture of the two and then with with um my prose i try to approach everything from the you know what's what what are the feelings here yeah. and how do i express those guys shall we pick our or pick your i guess top 10 doctor who stories five each are you ready to do that um, um, I'm, yeah, yeah i'm ready okay <laughs> what we're gonna do is uh did you both do them in preferential order Oh, I have. I no, I just scattergunned mine a little bit. Okay. I could put them in preferential order, though. Well, if you quickly mentally do that, I'll yeah, ask. Sure thing. Yeah. I'll sure. ask Paul for his number five first, and then we'll work our way up, alternating up to number each of your number ones. Paul, what's your number five choice? Um, an unearthly child, and by an unearthly child, I mean all four episodes, because that's what it's called. It's not called the Tribe of Gum. It's not <laughs> a thousand years BC. The whole four episodes are an unearthly child, because Terence Dix told me they were. So they... <laughs> I do, I actually prefer the Tribe of Gum as the name for a story for the whole four parts, as was on the script book. But I'm not going to Who argue cares? with you. <laughs> I, I prefer an unearthly child myself, um, yeah. and, and I have a qualification to that before you get into it, Paul. Oh, go on. Which is who is the unearthly child? You know, p- part of me thinks it's actually the Doctor, but uh, there you go. Yeah, no, I can see that. Um, but I am glad that you said all four episodes mm. because I think the latter three episodes of that are kind of unduly ignored, mostly. Absolutely, they're really much more the writing. Here, it's, here. it's really about the writing. There is there's poetry in that dialogue. Um, he's thought that the writer Coburn, he's thought very much about that society, the politics of that society, the power dynamics in that society. And it's all there on screen. That is a, the, those three episodes that follow the unearthly child. And, 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 and the first episode is a work of genius. It is. I mean, Hussain's direction, the spareness of the whole thing is, is fantastic. But those three episodes that follow, which I think have been so badly maligned over the years by people, People who think oh, well, cavemen weren't like that. No, it's not supposed to be a literal yeah, version yeah. of cavemen. It's supposed it's a, it's an adventure story, but it's also about humanity and it's about what the concerns of humanity would have been at that time. The politics, the way that uh, interactions are made and broken. The you know the outside. Why did we need fire? We needed fire to keep the dark at bay and it was all about that and it's it's such a poetic and beautiful story i i could watch it over and over again and i won't have any truck with people who say you know the, th- the latter three episodes of um uh, unearthly child are are terrible because they're just not 
they're no, not the stop, they're not they're not the stopgap between the first episode and the Daleks turning up. That's what they're they're, they're definitely not that. Well, I I've got to say, I mean, I guess if I'm being honest, I prefer the Daleks because you know alien planet Daleks. But if you're gonna actually look at the stories as they are a on paper and b on mm. screen on an earthly child it's got as much of a political allegory going on there yeah. as terry nation's story does but it is you know on a technical level it is by far the better story really oh it's and it just you just compare i mean i, I like a lot of terry nation stories don't get me wrong i'm a, i'm a i'm a big fan of things like planet of the daleks and oh, Genesis me too <laughs> uh, i mean planet of the daleks is tell me in on that as well yeah planet of the daleks is an absolute fantastic sunday afternoon war movie and if you watch it with that that con in that context it's brilliant however the the the, the drop-off in quality between unearthly child two, three, and four, and first episode of The Dead Planet is like dropping off a cliff. The dialogue is rubbish. <laughs> Absolutely rubbish. And speaking as a screenwriter, of course, of course, I, this is the thing that, that, that I go for all the time. And El it's funny that me and, me and Elton are doing this because we've long had this uh, back and forth <laughs> about how to watch Doctor Who. Elton's got this brilliant thing where he I, mean, I don't know if I'm uh, crashing you, Elton, but no, he talks about it, Doctor Who is a place. Yeah, Doctor Who is a place. It's a place that you visit, and I really get that. And it, and to Elton, sometimes it doesn't matter what the technical um, deficiencies are. I think it's a place you go to. It's 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 a journey, a trip that you make, and I get that. But I I, I do err because you know I think like a screenwriter. I, I I have one eye on the beauty and the and the fabulousness of it, but also on the technical bit of it and the technical drop off between the writing in unearthly child and dead planet one is immense <laughs> elton should we have your number five choice then yeah can i just um say oh, go on. Yeah, so, yeah sorry go uh, on yeah yeah it, it's just that that would be one of the stories i would have probably picked um because it's just immense what an amazing set of episodes they are mm. um I, I think um i think everything paul says is, is correct about those and yourself jr but um in terms of the drop off of quality into the daleks I, I think i would agree in terms of the dialogue the one thing they do manage to maintain um in production terms is mood yeah. Um, yeah. Now, clearly, in the final three episodes, particularly the final episode of An Earthly Child, the name of which evades me right now, the mood is utterly bleak. It's yeah. so yeah. horribly fight. bleak. It's frightening. You can smell the the scraped off flesh from those bones in that cave. It's disgusting. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I, I think they're kind of of a piece. They run as a sequence. The two two stories. What what you've got in An Earthly Child is do we need fire? Where will it take us? What will we become? Well, the Daleks tells you what they're going to become. You know, that's that's mm. the practical upshot of where this journey is going to go. And I've often and I've said about those two stories, what you've essentially got is Doctor Who taking Pulp Fiction ideas, but doing them deadly seriously. Mm. And that's why the series really works when it starts. It doesn't stay like that for long. <laughs> Because if it had, I don't think it would have lasted all this time. But right, yeah, but right at the very start, the fact that it takes everything so deadly seriously is what sells it to the audience initially, isn't it? It's It's got great gravity to it, great weight. 
And the interesting thing, just as we were talking about earlier on, I noticed that, you know, it's been recorded before, but certainly getting my hands dirty with this stuff. The Daleks is very much the time machine. Um, yeah, it, it takes those. And, and, and much of this bleeds into an unearthly child as well. You know, this uh, yeah. issue of fire and, and, and so on. That's a big part of, um, of Wells's original novella. Right, if we don't move on, we won't get time to yes. talk about your books. So let's move on. <laughs> number okay, five, well, Elton, for you. My number five is one that you probably neither of you will like. In fact, most people listening won't like this. But um, I'd like to uh, raise my flag in favour of Sleep No More. Oh, wow. I <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I don't like it, but I can see why people would... <laughs> I kind of respect it, maybe, more than I like it, perhaps. But give us your My reasons. My general impression is that most people don't like it. And, yeah. and I think one of the one of the uh, issues I've had over the last few years is, and, 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 and I, I think both of you have been witness to my conversations on Facebook and social media generally, mm-hmm. is that I, I, I found it very difficult to enjoy the Capaldi stroke latter Moffat years. Um, however, I, I did a reevaluation over the last year of um, every Moffat story or every story produced under Moffat's tenure, and I found that I absolutely love this stuff. Um, now, obviously, there are stories that tend to critically overshadow Sleep No More, but yeah. I, I think for me uh, to try and encapsulate it very quickly so we can move on <laughs> you don't have to be that quick <laughs> but i think i think it's a i think it's a very stylish episode it may be style over content to some extent it's a pretty basic base under siege story but it's been a long time since we had a very good one of those um i, I find i find the production very unusual uh, the dialogue is less reliant on more of the comic strip style quipping that's been going on in the stories around it i, I often say that um friends the, the television series kind of both enhanced and destroyed tv dialogue in that's I think it was about halfway through Friends, suddenly everybody wanted to be Chandler. Until that point, Chandler had been the funny one with the great quips and the great banter. And then suddenly, season three or four, everybody's got the same quips. And so suddenly everybody's Chandler. And I think this bled down into the rest of television or or, or certainly um, comedy and escapist television. I completely so you, you agree. Everybody yeah. has to be very smart and and and, and quippy, particularly in uh, in Doctor Who's case during situations of great stress, under which I don't think I'd be able to find words. Never mind a, a great quip. Um, also, in this in this episode, you have this lovely found footage stuff, which. To an extent, again, it's been done before, but what it does in these episodes and in the context of Doctor Who is it makes it look like old Doctor Who, which, you know, can't be a bad thing. You have that lovely silveriness to it. (laughs) And then you have, on top of this, Murray Gold is doing some... Again, it's debate. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of Radiophonic Workshop and Bleeps and and, and so on. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of music from the sea devils or the mutants and things like that. But um, in this, Murray Gold manages to create some music that certainly if you watch this, this one on the headphones, it it takes you back to things like space adventure and so on. You know, um, some of the stocks sort of music that Dr. Who used to have. 
And then there's Reese Shearsmith um, hamming it up beautifully, um, looking like a refugee from the key to time season. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that, that wonderful shot of his head disintegrating again. I know Paul will uh, harangue me for, for going for style over substance. But I also <laughs> think that, that Bethany Black's 474 is probably one of Doctor Who, certainly new Doctor Who's one most compelling and interesting characters. Um, a great performance that, that I don't see many people talking about very much, um, which, you know, I greatly admire when I watch it. Um, if I were to sum it up, Sleep No More, I would say it's probably my favourite Troughton adventure. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, have you got anything to add about I Sleep No know. More? Or shall we I move quickly know. along and forget all about it? I, I, just, just, just a couple of things. I, 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 I admire it. I like a lot of it. I think it cheats because it doesn't have an ending. Um, and there's a couple of bits that, uh, especially that you don't see, which are referenced later. I don't know if they were cut for time or whatever, where it just makes the whole thing fall apart as a piece of clockwork for me. Um, I, I like I like the thrust of it. I like Bethany Black. I think she's fantastic in it. Um, uh, but it it I, it's not as good as it thinks it is. Is is my is my take on it. Fair enough. I'll say one thing. I like the way it pretends to be found footage, but actually finds a decent science fiction rationale for you know that pretense. For me, it's up there with your kinders and your ghost lights. I think that you know. I, I think Paul's right. There are, there are aspects of it that seem missing, but at the same time, they in this instance. Um, enhance that for me. Yeah, yeah. Paul, should we have your number four choice then? Yes, yes, and 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 straight into um, the uh, uh, Capaldi era with uh, Listen, oh. which, I, <clears throat> which I think is is Moff's masterpiece. I think it's a a, a a serious contender for. I mean, it's in my top five, so it's a serious contender for the best of all time. I saw it in the edit that was uh, released to the internet um, by mistake. Um, <laughs> so, so I, I saw I saw the black and white unfinished version first, and it still staggered me when I saw it as an unfinished thing. It was it was a masterpiece. That 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 thump in your heart where you realise where it's taking place yeah. in relation to, you know, um, uh, Time of the Doctor um, is, is, is masterful. But what it's really, my, 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 my biggest thing about um, Listen is that it's the reverse of what Robert Holmes said about scaring the little buggers to death. It is reaching out of the telly to the scared, scared child and telling them that it's okay to be scared. Yeah, and yeah. that you, you know the doctor, you you can be the doctor. The doctor doesn't save the boy in it. He tells the boy to you know turn his back on his fear or, or, or just ignore the fear so that the fear will go away. To not give the fear any power. And it's the absolute reversal of what most people wanted from their Hinchcliffe era Doctor Who. And I love it for that. It's also a rom-com. It's a fantastic rom-com. It's also Moff's 
he's a he's a guy who plays with time. He's very, very you know one of the things about Doctor Who is very few of the stories have in the you know in the fifty years have been about time, and this is his most linear time travel story. But it's absolutely about fear and and about how we deal with fear, and it's so hopeful and so wonderful, and it's just perfect. Yeah, it's in my all time top three for sure my one takeaway from my biggest takeaway not my one takeaway from listen is when Stephen Moffat is absolutely on top of his material he has this brilliant way of saying something about the people who watch the television saying something about the characters in his stories but saying something about the medium of television itself Wrapping it all up inside a story that works on all those different levels equally as well and all the others, at the same time as giving us an ending that's slightly ambiguous in Mm. that it looks like it pushes things forward, it doesn't. It actually manages to keep things in the same place, while at the same time giving, as you said, a really joyous, hopeful feeling to the oh, person who's I, been watching I, it afterwards, yeah. I definitely think there are kids who are watching it today or watched, you know, watched it when it went yeah. out, you know, young kids who will be affected by it in ways that we can't even guess at now. And you, you just don't find that level of emotional healing every day in a silly TV show. You just don't. <laughs> Elton, it's got that wonderful dark core of um, yeah. M.R. Jamesness to it as well. Mm. Um, I, I love Listen. I would have picked Listen had i not guessed that paul would (laughs) (laughs) fair enough should we should we go on to your number four then elton yeah my number four is kinder oh fair enough um i I think when i i came to doctor who in 1973 when i was about two years old i remember seeing bits of planet of the daleks and from there on i was hooked through the daleks but as i got older and got through the hinchcliffe stuff um i i still watched doctor who as as a little boy but then other things i was watching as well and then you, you know when tom left i i sort of hit uh 11 years old i was starting high school the target books were all over the place and I think, you know, as much as Tom had been my doctor or as much as Pertwee had been my first doctor, as a sort of adolescent, um, Davison became my doctor. And and again, later on, McCoy would become my doctor for my sort of college years. But I remember Kinder being on um, and I watched that first um, Davison season with, 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 with great joy and great relish. Um, but I remember not being, I remember being interested by Kinder, but not deeply moved by it. And then about, I think it was about two years later, they repeated it um, during the summer. Uh, yeah. Probably over one week or something like that. And I, I, I watched it. I think it wasn't always possible to watch television on, on my own. Um, you know, even when Doctor Who was on, there was probably something going on in the background. But during this particular summer, I was able to watch these episodes on my own. And, and I don't know if they were colliding with adolescent emotions or growing up stuff, as they say. But um, Kinder really just vibrated deep inside me and resonated. And, and and without being able to articulate it as a 12-year-old or 13-year-old, whatever I was, I think I was just crossing into 13, I... I, I, I I just knew that it moved something magical and interesting and exciting inside me that Doctor Who, for all its 
Earthshocks and Deaths of Adric and Sutex and so on hadn't it hadn't grabbed me by the soul if that if that sounds at all like no, anything no, sensible. No. That, um, Doctor Who very rarely actually says even even these days very rarely actually says anything about people, the yeah. mind, the heart, the soul, the emotions. So when something comes along that does. And actually, funnily enough, this is on my mind because I'm literally just writing a thing about this for the magazine. When when that happens, those stories tend to be the ones that stand out that we can react to either really well or really badly. But they are the Marmite ones, the polarising ones, the yes. ones that you either absolutely hate or absolutely adore. And there's not really anywhere in between. And Kinder is very definitely something that talks about people the way we feel about things, the way we understand things. It's a beautiful production, great music. You know, the jungle's fake, but, you know, if you if you can't get out, you know, it's a bit like the tribe of gum, and, and, and I mean the actual tribe. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and one of the stories I'm going to be talking about shortly as well, you know, if 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 you can't cope with, with the jungle being, you know, made out of plant pots and, and all this business... You know, you you yeah. have to suspend your disbelief when you're watching Doctor Who. You have to. It, it, it's not. You know, certainly the um, original run. It's not. Lit, it's not literally no. <laughs> happening in real life. It's uh, it's it, it uh, it's a place you go, Paul. It's a place you go. But yeah, I love. Kinder. Is it okay for me at this point to just say Kinder Neris Hughes legs and that? And we'll just <laughs> that. because that's what that's what I, I, my adolescence. That's what my adolescence was about. I, I wrote a fan letter to uh, Janet Fielding and I'm sure it would have been shocking if I actually sent it but um, (laughs) yes I I, I really adored Tegan she's I don't know what it was maybe it was the fact that um, she complained maybe it was the fact that she resembled people I knew and lived with um, that you know she uh, she was she was a character I identified with Um, maybe it's because you were a gobby Australian then (laughs) yeah yeah, gobby northerner I was a gobby (laughs) northerner back then but uh, yeah who knows? But yeah, I adore Kinder. Yeah, yes, I know, I, I, I do too. Actually, it is, it is, it, it, it vacillates in and out of my my top ten of all time. It is, it is near perfect. It is very, very, very it, good. It reaches. It really yeah. it does. Yes. And the one thing I'll say about the jungle there, and I say this about the city in Happiness Patrol too, I think yes. having a fake jungle, having a fake city, helps. The viewer, yes. if he's open to it, understand the illusions as opposed to taking it yeah. literally. Do you yeah. know, I never, I never noticed that the city in happen when I watched it, Happiness Patrol was um, fake until people told me that I was, Agreed. Supposed, to, Agreed. <laughs> I was supposed to be looking at it. As if this it was is it. Like, I think we yeah. we grew up watching Doctor Who in a particular way, yes. uh, under certain conditions of, of the way in which television was made, as we all, as we all know here. I don't think it was between, allegory. It was about theatre and, and film, and 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 it is. It's allegorical. It's it's, uh, it's storybook. It's uh, you yeah. know at whatever level. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I think that if you hadn't necessarily travelled that trajectory, it's not always easy to appreciate these things. If, if you know, without being patronising, if, if <laughs> but but you know, if you weren't there, we we encountered Doctor Who in a particular direction. If that makes yeah. sense, absolutely. Right, Paul, your number three choice. Uh, my number three choice, which is also my because th- we're going on to two and and uh, two and one, which aren't TV stories. Okay, uh, but my. But my third, my, my so my favourite television story uh, of Doctor Who, and and my my 
you know, one of my all-time favourite things of anything ever is the Stones of Blood. Oh, Love really? Them. Go on, yep. say why then. Uh, because it's it, it's quintessentially what Doctor Who is about, which is about science going up against um, the supernatural and explaining the supernatural. It's got the biggest bait and switch in Doctor Who in terms of the, the shift from um, folk horror to space pants <laughs> that, that you will ever see outside of From Dusk Till Dawn. When I saw From Dusk Till Dawn, I didn't know that it was going to be turned from a, a gangster pants into vampire pants. I had no idea that that was going to happen. I wow. hadn't been spoiled from dusk to dawn. And Stones of Blood does the same thing. It's it's I I, I I've got this theory that post Doctor Who post Doctor Who started with Pirate Planet. It didn't start in two thousand and five or <laughs> it started with that. That's Pirate Planet is almost I think where Doctor Who starts to talk about itself as a as a cultural artifact. Yeah, and, I think I can, and, I can I can get that. I get that. And, and and it, and, it, and Stones of Blood continues that right, in an absolute. Power. I mean, you've got uh, a brilliant writer. Fisher is a is a is a genius. I think um, uh, you've got all that Hammer stuff saying yes, Finch, uh, Hinchcliffe and Holmes existed, yeah. and and they were a thing. And this is what you expect from your Doctor Who. And then, bam, you've got. You've got, you're, you're in space, in hyperspace. You've got a brilliant female villain. You've got there. There is a paucity of female villains in Doctor Who, and in Vivian Fay, you've got an absolute brilliant female villain, villain, the 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 the, the Kaliak and all of that stuff. But it's the it's the shift of gears which I love about it. It's got some of the best lines of all time. Busy nothing hyperspace, which I think is just a, a you know a fantastic moment of Tom. I don't know if it's in the actual script or whatever, but it, it's brilliant. You've got K nine has got agency. It's the best K nine story. He can go and do stuff on his own. He's he he's brilliant. Beatrix Lehman. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. She's, yeah. she's, she's amazing. Sausage sandwiches. Research oh, sausage sandwiches. Absolutely beautiful. She's, she's brilliant. But the story itself is so audacious, so clever, so smart, so about Doctor Who that I, 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 I could talk about it forever. I just love everything. And, of course, the Ogre as well. I mean, lesser production teams would have said, oh, let's put a man in a rubber suit that looks a bit like a, a stone and have him lumbered about. No, we've got actual monoliths, you know, children of the stones coming to life. <laughs> and it's, it, I, I, I love it. I love it to bits. I absolutely adore it. Fair enough. David Fisher is one of the few writers who comes in and actually has not a Douglas Adams esque, but certainly slightly in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Sort of facility for ideas and fitting them together, hasn't he? His mm. his books have a similar his... um, similar approach to Adams in on that score. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's just the you think this is going to be one thing, and then bam, it smacks you in the face and becomes something else, something so much. Yeah. And you've got the Megara. There's yeah, just yeah. so much. <laughs> that's great that's really good really well out stuff there's a know, definite shift I'm... around that point there is uh, yeah. you're saying about you know post who and I, I, yeah. I think certainly with the pirate planet and um and stones of blood you, this yeah. i don't know if, whether it's to, because you know we've we've probably all watched these things in order several times mm. um the last time i did it i remember there being a real shift there a real leap in yeah general quality and style which which made a great big impression mm. on me really. 
Yeah, it didn't quite happen in season 15, but once Graham Williams had kind of been in the chair for a year and sorted out how he felt, I guess, about what he was doing, you can really feel him start to sort of take charge of it, can't you? Tom is so so moody and horrible, and you know, before this, there's a middle period of his tenure as the Doctor, where he's he's you know he's almost unwatchably unpleasant. You know, it's it's difficult mm. to watch things like Underworld, for example, not because of production values, but because Tom just seems so distant. Whereas you get to the key to time season, and he's he's full of life, and things look great. The stories are getting clever and more incisive. So yeah, great choice, Paul. And let's have your next choice then, Elton. Thanks for the segue there. (laughs) (laughs) I like Underworld as well. I I, I don't think I would have been able... (laughs) (laughs) Most of the time, most of the time, if if anybody asks me, I tend to say that William Hartnell is my favourite Doctor. Um, So I, I couldn't have done this without including a Hartnell story. And so I've chosen The Web Planet, Ah, well, that's an unusual choice. But go on, then. Well, again, you know, getting back to these jungles and these tribes of gum and so on, I I think that, you know, there's a very... You you talk to a lot of any modern fans, and and indeed a lot of older fans as well, but, you know, they don't get on with the web planet because of the production values. And yet, I think it's an amazing, moody, creepy, spooky story with a great performance from the... uh, Non crotchety William Hartnell. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's get let's set that straight. He's you know, compare him to Tom Baker, John Pertwee, um, Cabaldi. Even you know he's he's nowhere near as crot- as crotchety as 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 they are. But um, it, it looks beautiful. It, it's it's ambition is probably relatively unparalleled. Yeah. Um, these. You know, men in rubber suits in this story look fantastic. You know, the I, th- I think the Monoptera, in particular, um, design-wise, they 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 kind of preempt the sort of um, Jim Atchison sort of designs that would appear in in, in uh, stories such as uh, Carnival of Monsters or, or, or further on. You know, you're looking at. Um, Later stuff like uh, did he do the Zygons? Did he did he do those? Um, I think he did. They were probably oh, built by dark someone in space. Like Free Thunder or someone like mm. that. But um, yeah, just this sense of the, there's a style to it. There's a real um, there's a real design to this in a way that you know something like uh, the Space Museum, which again gets maligned, but I quite enjoy, doesn't quite have the design kick. You know that, and, and we know it's budgetary, mm. um, but you know the, the, you've got this great collection of action figure um, <laughs> monsters in this story, and 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 not only that, you have at the centre of it all in in this uh, in, in the. Um, the, uh, the 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 carcinome you have you have the animus who's probably one of the most chilling things to happen yeah. in Doctor Who at that point it's a great big horrible spider comparable to say the great intelligence that somehow descended from nowhere and um, is eating up this planet draining you know it's Nemini's sacrifice when she yeah. plunges her head into the mm-hmm. acid you know yeah. and the language again you know let's make the walls speak more light and all this business it's a beautiful piece of work and yeah. Jacqueline Hill Jacqueline Hill Jacqueline Jacqueline Hill, Jacqueline Hill. <laughs> it's one of those stories that doesn't get enough. Um, it doesn't get enough kudos for the amount of actual world building and the amount of thought that's got into building that world and the amount of thought that's got into making all the different sort of stratas of that society unique 
but but fit together and visually so arresting that yeah. cliffhanger yeah. where the the, the 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 doctor and vicky are enveloped in web you know and you think just for the actors that must have been horrible um and, and the, the sheer sense of loss the doctor feels or and and, and demonstrates when when he, feel, he feels he's uh lost the tardis i, I, I think it's uh, a a dark eerie um story it's it, 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 it's very chilling in places but it's a great adventure it's got that sort of um um edgar rice Burroughs sort of feel to it as well you yeah. know it, it, it's, it's great it's one of those ones that suffers from being watched all in one go when it really yes. really really should be watched a week apart because then you yeah. get to spend 25 minutes somewhere really alien that works so alien. yes can i can i just yeah. just chip in here and say web planet you interesting you say that um uh, you should watch it a week apart uh, web planet was the first story that i ever um uh, reviewed as i watched it um uh, on the internet back in the, the 90s right a long time ago i've been on i've been on the internet since god was a boy and i, I recarts doctor who i think it's it, my, my review of it is still there um and I love it. I love Web Planet. And I watched it specifically because everybody hates it or seems to hate it. Everybody, nobody gets it. <laughs> Back in the 90s, nobody got it at all. Nobody. So I sat there and I thought, well, I'll give this a, a really good. And I loved it. I love it. I concur with everything that Ellen said. It's a it's a masterpiece of ambition. Um, there's not really a bad moment in it. Female villain, voiced villain again. Um, fantastically, you know, uh, it. it Directed to the to the hilt. It's a the animus has got a female voice, isn't it? Yes, it has. I'm just trying yes. to remember the name. Is it yeah. Catherine think, Fleming or something? Like I think that? I think yeah. I think that's the first first female villain in Doctor Who. Ooh. Oh, what about Old Mother? Oh yeah, maybe, maybe yeah, maybe. Um, anyway, but um, in terms of yes, um, sorry, the, just Catherine Fleming. I've just checked. Yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, um, the stuff that sits in your brain. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but in terms of story, which is again how I look at these things, it's I fantastic. It's fabulous. It's everything for me that the Daleks' first Dalek story isn't. Yes. Um, and because it is that fabulous out there world that's really, uh, really strange, really, really strange. Whereas, the, whereas Scaro in in that place is a place that's been blown away. We can imagine what Scarrow is like after the Neutronic War. Yeah. Yeah. In the web planet, we're going to somewhere we have never seen. Mm. And, never. It, and, I, and I'm a real pain for romanticising these kind of things, but yeah. it fits with that whole sort of white heat, op art sort of yes. mid-60s vibe, you know, and it, it suits the titles of the show, you know, the, the Manoptra's um, carapaces, if, if, if you would call them that, uh, they they resemble, you know, that, that howl round stuff in the mm. titles. It's beautiful. It's awesome. Awesome. Awesome story. Yeah. Right. Shall we um, move on to your number two choice, Paul? My number two choice is a novel mm -hmm. um, from the BBC Books range. Um, book and it's the Book of the Still, yes! <laughs> I wasn't allowed to choose. Book My favourite bit of the book of the still is your biog, where it says something like, um, "Paul Ebbs has wanted to write a BBC book ever since he realised it would pay off some of his debts," or something like yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nice. And I, at the time, I was working on BBC's Doctors, and uh, I was really glad that Doctors <laughs> gave me fifty percent of the show I really wanted to work for. <laughs> um, anyway, yes. Yeah, so, so it's the Turing Test by Paul Leonard. Right. Uh, it's a novel. It's a novel about novelists. Um, it's really smart. It's really clever. It tells a really affecting story about Alan Turing. It's got lots of um, uh, lots of stuff about Graham Greene and Joseph Heller, and uh, uh, it's just a remarkably well put together literate. It's it's a it's a story that could only be told as a book. Uh, you couldn't. It's 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 not filmable in the sense um of, of 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 the visuals of it although there are some you know the bits in africa I, I i guess would look really good but this is about internal feelings this is about the doctor's feelings about his relationship with alan turing his relationship with graham green his relationship with joseph heller it's 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 really clever really smart it's the best Doctor Who book ever written. Sorry, the dogs are going past me at the moment. Um, <laughs> like, hello, dogs. They're going out to the garden. Bye, dogs. Um, uh, and there are no dogs in it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but there are now. Uh, it's I, I, it's a marvellous read. I, I have tears in my eyes at the end. Paul Leonard is a remarkable writer, and it's a shame he doesn't write more stuff. Um, uh, he's a, He gave me a lot of encouragement, actually, um, when I was starting out. So... Um, I thank him for that, but the, I had this is uh, that encouragement has nothing to do with why I love this book uh, so much, and it's the most one of the most affecting Doctor Who stories I've ever read. I'm going to have to see if I can pull it off the shelf. I've got a complete set of BBC books, but I've just never had the time to dig into them. I was a lapsed fan during the wilderness years. You can de- you can definitely read it as a standalone. It, it works as a it's it's a definite standalone novel. I will. I remember, I remember reading the Turing test, but it's, you know I, I'm not. I don't feel qualified right now to comment on it because it must be. When did it come out? It must be over. Is it nearly well, twenty years, years ago? Yeah, two thousand, I think. Yeah, and it was it part of that post the burning sequence? Yes. But yeah, yeah. they were great. I really enjoyed those. Yeah. Um, and I remember there was Casualties of War. Was that one around that yeah, time? Yeah, that was one as well. Yeah, I thought that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I remember being affected by the Turing test very much. So. It's a, it's a, it's 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 such a compassionate and humane book. And and you know the Eighth Doctor, McGann's Doctor, is all about. He's not about analysis. He's about emotions yes. and that's that's the perfect that's the you know that the bit in the tv movie where he says oh these shoes they fit perfectly yeah. it's yeah. all about it's all about his emotions how he feels about stuff he fixes things with emotions not by science instinct and, and intuition isn't it and that's, it's beautiful that's why, yeah. that's why he's such a brilliant doctor isn't that absolutely brilliant. and to write for him book of the steel i'll just mention that again available <laughs> in all good second-hand bookstores <laughs> uh, that i get no money for at all um, uh, it, it was a joy to write for him and to, to tap into that emotional side of the Doctor that you you don't see a lot of, especially in the in the pre two thousand and five years. Yeah, yeah. Elton, shall we move on to your second choice then? Yeah, and as a quick qualifier, I did toy with looking at um, some of the books. Um, I didn't, but I'd just like to quickly mention that if I had, I would have gone for a kind of umbrella collection of the Kate Orman Virgin books because I thought Kate Orman's stuff whenever I got a new one of those I was always in safe hands in a yeah. world and a kind of a, again emotions and intuition version of Doctor Who and I think yeah. 
I think, you know, the, the Sylvester McCoy virgin New Adventures doctor lent himself to that greatly, certainly after Paul Cornell got his hands on it. And yeah, um, yeah. That's it was always where it was at for me. But um, yeah, so where am I up to? Number two. Hmm, two. OK, so I couldn't really choose between two and one, but let's stick a pin in it. OK. Number two, Asylum of the Daleks. Oh, really? Yeah, again, proving the lie to my... I don't like the, <laughs> I don't like the Moffat years, um, which, again, just for the record, is now categorically untrue. I adore them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> why Asylum of the Daleks? Um, on a gut level, as I said earlier, I came into Doctor Who at Planet of the Daleks. I think it really cemented for me during Death to the Daleks, which even now I can put on, and and, and to me it's a, yeah. a kind of, if you will, a not literally but more thematically it's a pre-Hinchcliffe um let's story and, yes. and, and it, it, you know it, it, it suggests and hints that some of the darkness we're heading towards in in subsequent seasons um the mood of i'm talking about death of the daleks here, but <laughs> the mood of that story is is so bleak in those opening uh, in the, certainly in the opening episode and and i think what asylum does is manage to capture Certainly Planet of the Daleks and Death to the Daleks, if not Day, but it also taps into um, those lost Trouton's uh, power and um, evil to some extent. It just, you know, it's, it struck me when I, I, I always liked it. I remember watching it as a season opener um, and, and thinking, wow, Doctor Who's back where I want it to be. You know, and it's all about our sort of subjective um, engagement with it. But... Seeing it again this time and trying to keep an open mind and being prepared to see faults in it and flaws in it, it just it just struck me as the most Doctor Who Doctor Who story I'd seen in my sort of Moffat rewatch. It, it kind of represented everything about the the grand tropes of of what Doctor Who is. Um, added to which, it was creepy and scary. It, it was a bit like um, a visual representation of a new Target book. Plus, my favourite um, New Who companion, um, Rory. Oh, uh, right. Absolutely brilliant. Arthur, uh, Arthur Darville uh, being um, almost Roy Castle and Bernard Cribbins um, <laughs> in terms of his the, the way he um, interacts with the Daleks in the asylum, which, you know, what, I, I, find, I find that sequence so horribly tense. You just put, you know, you put yourself in his position. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but what we what we have is the knowledge that he doesn't that these things are just likely to kill him. Um, and then you have this wonderful wonder, which was a great surprise at the time. This wonderful, um, the twist. Clara yeah, figure. Yeah. You know, this Dalek with a, you know, ultimately a red Dalek with a flower in its hair. Um, and 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 when Amy walks into the asylum and she sees. The ballet dancing Dalek, and she sees all these, you know, other characters that, in a sense, whenever I see that, I think, well, is Amy just imagining these figures, um, or are we kind of being told this is what they could have been? You yeah, know, had they yeah. been mutated and corrupted and abused yeah. by whoever is in charge of the Daleks at any given time? You know, it, are the are these the Daleks could have beens and never were? You know, it's. Yeah. But for you know, for all this sort of geekiness, it, it, it's a competent, great adventure. It it 
some of the things I really like about Doctor Who, or I've come to like about Doctor Who in recent years, are, are, are things that take the show and say, yeah, there's all this lovely continuity and we can play with that and we can, you know, and I, I love continuity, I do. I'm a bit of a whore for that stuff. But it, um, it can get in the way. And I love people who tear it up or, or remix it or play with it and give you something new, you know. And, and so a parliament of Daleks? Ridiculous. But hey, what the hell? It's there, it's on screen, it's real, it's happening. Deal with it and make of it what you will. Uh, mm. But, you know, a great, tense, exciting, traditional Doctor Who story. And I think, you know, I needed one of those in my list, really. <laughs> well, Stephen Moffat... Oh, just... Stephen Moffat has this way of going into things like where did Terry Nation get the inspiration from the Daleks? He saw some ballet dancers. Let's have a yes. ballet dancing Dalek. Yeah. And yeah, of course, exactly. he updates the Robo Men and all the rest of it. Yeah, but he kind of does these things without you even noticing that that's what he's doing, almost. It's, it's got everything. It, it, yeah. It, it, there's a, there's a great deal to be had from those episodes, even though ultimately, really, they're just a quick, slick adventure. But yeah. um, it's, mm. it's that Clara stuff. Uh, I've forgotten that Oswald, uh, yes. Oswin. Um, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, and heartbreaking. Mm. Paul, you were going to say, sorry, I cut yes, you yeah, off. I did. Well, there's a couple of things I wanted to say about Asylum. It was one of the, it's one of those stories that I've reevaluated that I didn't really like on transmission. I remember being very disappointed by it on transmission. Uh, but when I watched everything last year and got to it again, I realised how wrong I was. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm fully, um, fully concurring with, um, with Elton, what Elton said there. Uh, but the, the thing that the key to the, the Asylum of the Daleks for me is a, a bit that's, that's so intricately, again, we're talking craft, screenwriting mm. craft here, that's so intricately buried in it that you are shown it all coming and you don't know that it's going to happen to the moment it happens is when the doctor fixes Amy and Rory's relationship. Yes. That is an absolute yes. genius piece of screenwriting. It is brilliant. It's it's so buried and so layered in there, you don't even know that it's coming, happening, and when it happens, it bursts like a flower growing in your head, a beautiful flower. It is an, a magnificent moment of television. But also, i just like to add at the time, I've just had a WhatsApp from my other half, who's in the other room, who says, <laughs> you sound very knowledgeable, but you could have mentioned me a bit more, but whatevs. So... <laughs> 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 I, I need to mention the other half, so there you go. Otherwise, I won't get any dinner. All right, job done. Now let's move okay, on. Quick, I've got to do a quick <laughs> shout out then, myself. Quick shout out to Sarah Debella, who will kill me <laughs> if I don't mention her. Okay, this is the advertising your other halves bit. <laughs> I, I look, I look. I'm, I'm a slave. I'm under the thumb. I'm, you know, I, I, I must do it. I've, I've had the, I've had the command on the WhatsApp. What hey, am I supposed to do? But look. Another brilliant segue. We're just talking about other halves, and here you are at your number ones. Whee! <laughs> Paul, what's your number one story, please? The great, the greatest uh, Doctor Who story ever told, ever created in any medium, uh, on on radio, audio, book, or TV, or comic, is the Tides of Time. Um, Marvel comic uh, Davidson story from way back when in the very early eighties, eighty one, I think. Uh, yeah, but the eighty two, wouldn't it? Eighty two. Yeah. You, you've you've got the dream team of Dave Gibbons and, and and Parkhouse, 
Yeah, uh, bless him. The, the the best comic writer there has ever been for Doctor Doc Two. I mean, I, I I love you know what came before, and I love quite a lot of what comes after. Although there's far too much of it now, I can't keep up. Um, uh, but the when Parkhouse was writing, when he was creating um, uh, his Doctor Who stories, you know, uh, Tides of Time into Stars went on Stockbridge into Stockbridge Terror into into that. So that was for me the golden age of Doctor Who. Uh, it's never been bettered um, on TV, it's never been bettered on book, anywhere for me, audio, anywhere. He creates an entire world, he takes the 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 raw material, the raw ingredients of Doctor Who and 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 makes something that is extraordinary. It's it's extraordinary science fiction, it's extraordinary um, the visuals, Gibbons' visuals are ex- absolutely extraordinary. That that cricket match, oh, you yeah. look, at that, look at those pictures of the cricket mm. match. You can hear the ball being hit. You can you can smell the grass. I can you hear can. the explosion. Yeah, and and, and the, <laughs> how's that? Um, I, 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 some of the best uh, um, um, uh, visuals that have ever been created for the show, I think. Um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a even in a comic, uh, the event synthesizer shade. What a what a brilliant companion shade is. Why why hasn't shade um, made it into the TV show? Why hasn't shade made it into you know other medium? What a brilliant character, Justin. Fantastic. It's it's but it's so mind expanding as well. The sequence when when time is breaking down and there, there's that huge fantasy sequence, the roller coaster. Oh, uh, it's, I, I love it. I love it. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm just gushing now. Really. <laughs> and, I, and I sound like a 12-year-old, but I feel like a, every time I read Tides of Time, I feel like a 12-year-old again. It's it's a masterpiece. Do you know what? I think the Tides of Time was the influence on Russell T. Davis when he came up with the idea oh, yeah. of the Time War. And I also think it has been a huge influence on Stephen Moffat over everything from the Wedding of River Song to the Pandorica Opens and all points in between. Mm-hmm. I, I really, I really do think that, that there are there are two there are two major influences on on, on uh, two thousand and five Doctor Who, and they are the Marvel strips and the, the Cartmel yeah. era of, yeah, of yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah. Without uh, those two things put together, become they wouldn't have happened in and, and and new adventures to some extent. I should I should mention the new adventures, but those those things those three things coming together are what drives I think Doctor Who now in in the way that they took the concept and uh, of Doctor Who and changed it in subtle ways, made it about different things, pushed it pushed it to another level. Um, yeah. you know, I know everybody loves their classic. Who and they love their demons and their and their and their, and their what have you and I love the demons I do I, I, I adore it. However, to my 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 um, feeling is that 2005 post 2005.2 would not exist in the way that it does without Marvel comics of those times, Cartmel and the New Adventures. Yeah, it I just wouldn't look like it. Yeah, completely. I, I think to some extent, you know, I often go on about. I, I really enjoy Battlefield, for example. Yes. And to me, that's the first new adventure. Anyway, I know for you, the first new adventure is Tides of Time, Paul. Yeah. Added to Tides of Time, which I agree is quintessential Doctor Who, and it's quintessential comics. Mm. Date Gibbons fantastically employing a kind of Marvel standard. Um, 
his inks, he inks himself Mm -hmm. like no one else could. He looks like Joe Sinnott from the 60s or whatever. Fantastic stuff. But I'd also have to, you know, if I was going to add anything to what you're saying about Tides of Time, is the post-show party, which is Stars Fell on Stockbridge and the Stockbridge Horror. They, you know, when I was reading those at 12, 13, they struck me in a similar way to Kinder. There was a, a, a real sense of... They're talking about depression. They're talking mm. about, um, you know, your angst with being part of a world you don't quite understand or being out of control. Um, you know, the, um, Max Edison, is that his name? Mm. Max yeah, Edison, yeah. Maxwell Edison on the spaceship and, and the sheer emptiness of it, you know, that hollowness at the, at the heart of his own life. I was and, and, mentioning... Uh, um, uh, season my season 27 audios um earlier and i wrote a whole one set in stockbridge with um, yeah. max and then I, I got uh, mark donovan who i'm sure you both know he plays yes. will edison in it uh it's, it's brilliant I, I'm, I'm so pleased that i got such a good actor to play maxwell edison and and get to have a little play in stockbridge myself and that was my um you know my my kiss if you like yeah. to tide time and stars fell on stockbridge but well, when you and said Stock- you were Stock- yeah, i was just Stock- gonna say when you said you were gonna choose a comic strip i thought well there's no way i'll be able to talk about that there's no way i'll know about that there's no way i'll have read it there's no way i'll remember it and you've picked <laughs> the one that has forever lived with me because it is the one that i did you know the one that i did read and enjoy oh, it's and, the best yeah it's it's a, it's a great little sequence and I, I think culminating in stockbridge horror the be- beautiful imagery in there of when he finds the TARDIS imprinted in the quarry and, oh, and, and the sense of that he's out of control as well. It's, it, I think you write about Parkhouse. He's, his mm. work is striking and very enigmatic. Yes. Great loss. Shall we move on to uh, your number one choice then, Elton? Yeah, my number one choice, which could have been Asylum of the Daleks, actually has turned out to be A Christmas Carol. Oh, wow. Yes. I can absolutely see why that would be a number one. It's, um, you know, I, I remember seeing it on transmission, which, you know, is, is quite a while ago now. Funny, you know, you, you think, you know, it, it feels relatively recent, but it's, it's, it's getting on for, what, nearly 10 years ago. But um, A Christmas Carol, I, I, I really enjoyed it on Christmas Day. It's very difficult to evaluate a Christmas Day, Doctor Who, when you're surrounded mm. by family and you're a bit drunk and you're eating all kinds of food. But, you know, on reflection, I've probably seen it about five times now. Um, I think it is faultless, absolutely faultless. And and it takes on that playing with time business that Paul was talking about, that mm. Moffat is, is actually very, very good at. Um, I think <laughs> in this case, in this instance, he pulls a blinder to, to actually watch a character witnessing himself changing yeah um it's fantastic but it's got great mood it's got a solid story a solid cast it's got great comedy matt smith is at the top of his game yes the stuff in the wardrobe with the little boy is is just Mm -hmm. hilarious absolutely hilarious um i I think it's a production success on every level and it's probably got one of the best baddies we've ever had certainly one of the best baddie performances um it's it's great and you know um but i don't know maybe i'm mellowing a little bit because there were other stories i could have included in this list such as deep breath listen flatline day of the doctor but rings of 
Akarten? Did you pronounce yes. it like that? Akarten, I Which, think. Akarten, I yeah. don't know. I've no idea. Yeah. I've, only, I've only seen it twice. The first time I saw that, I couldn't bear it. The second time, I adored it. Yeah. So, you know, cheesy songs <laughs> yeah. no longer seem to bother me. But uh, yeah, time, I, I just really love A Christmas Carol. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful celebration of what Doctor Who is without, ironically, being too Doctor Who-y. Yeah. I was going to say, both times I've watched Rings of Akaten, I've hated it. So, <laughs> What I love about Akaten is there's, there's a statement made that the universe began here. There's a legend that the universe began or, or the, you know, life began here or whatever. And uh, so to my, to my reading, you know, when he destroys the sun at the end, he's, he's, uh, he's killing God. Um, I, I quite like that. Quite oh. like that. I, I, I did want to say something about Christmas Carol, if I may, JR. Go on. As well. my, my experience of, of Christmas Carol is very different to, to Elton's, in the, or anybody's, I, I guess, or, or some people who were watching it that Christmas day. I was in a really bad place in my in my personal life at the time, and I ended up being on my own on Christmas Day uh, because of, because of, of 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 that. And um, I was at, I was in a pretty dire condition. Uh, psychologically i think and christmas carol which i i adore i think fixed me in some sense uh, on that day it actually gave me a sense of you know the crushing horribleness of my life at that time which it really was pretty terrible um a christmas carol really did um lift me and give me some hope and so I'll I'll always love that story. I'll always love that um, what it did what it did to me, what it did for me. Um, it's, it's such a hopeful story, yes, isn't it? I was just going to give my very little uh, oh, yeah, yeah. anecdote about A Christmas Carol as well. Very briefly, I very little known fact, because this is the first time I've ever said it, so I doubt anybody actually realises it's true. It's the first story I reviewed for Starburst. I gave it 8 out of 10 stars, and I realised afterwards that I'd given it at least 3 too few. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so- one, of, one, of my, um, one of my sly things I do as a playwright is I try with every, every one of the plays I've done for Dyad, I've tried to drop in a line from Doctor Who or a reference <clears> to <throat> Doctor Who, usually very oblique, so the sort of thing that most people wouldn't get except yeah. for the, the true, you know, the true hardcore. But in, uh, I, I did a play called The Unremarkable Death of Marilyn Monroe around about the same time. Yes. And, and because there's a reference to Marilyn in A Christmas Carol, I had a moment where um, she's listing off a great many confidants in her life that have been helpful to her, one of whom was Dr. Smith. Brilliant. Sadly, it, it, it sadly didn't make the final cut, but oh, um, yeah, it, it's there. It's there in the. Uh, it's there in the script. I've got. I've got a similar story. Not to. Not to but when I was uh, writing on Doctors, there's a whole episode of Doctors that I did, which where all the character names are taken from Terror of the Autons. So I, was quite, I was quite pleased. I was quite pleased. And somebody actually noticed, and I remember seeing somewhere on the internet, somebody puts it in, 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 as a reference where they're talking about Terror of the Autons. But yeah, I didn't tell anyone, and uh, I'm. I'm here. I am admitting it for the first time, but every single character <laughs> name was from Terror of the Autons. You know, Mr. Rossini. And <laughs> wow. I was, and nobody at the BBC noticed. It's probably, you know, <laughs> Brilliant. probably not the best, most professional thing I've ever done. <laughs> Speaking about writing, perfect segue for us to talk about the two books. <laughs> Do you think you just learned that word, JR? Because you've said it about seven times. I know, but as as the host of a <laughs> podcast, Paul, I like people to see how it works. 
how my mind works at the very least the wiring under the board well it doesn't yeah. yeah there's not much working going on i'm taking your prompts and thinking oh i could use that <laughs> elton but yes this is a book that i've been involved in but for anybody who doesn't know because i'm i'm sh- i'm pretty sure we mentioned it on the podcast when it came out we would have mentioned it i'm certain but for anybody who's listening who doesn't know tell us about the book and what it's called, uh, the, of course, and how it came the, about. <laughs> the book is called Hublique Strategies, which is a play on oblique strategies. Um, quite simply, um, I've, you know, I, I'm, I've got I've got a, a full time job. I'm very happy doing what I do, but I, I like to dabble, and the internet means that you you get to meet a lot of great creative people. And so consequently, I found myself contributing, you know, short stories and articles and ideas to uh, different sort of uh, fan projects and publications, usually the ones that are um, connected to some sort of um, charity. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was whilst working on one of those um, last year, I I stepped in to edit one at the last minute that I realized that I'd love to do one based on um, the oblique strategy cards that were... um, put together by Brian Eno and another chap called, oh, Peter Schmidt, um, when they were working on David Bowie's albums in the 70s, the albums Low, Heroes and Lodger. They're called the Berlin Trilogy by most fans, but I think they were, I think only one of them was recorded in Berlin, if that. Um, they were largely recorded in France and Switzerland, I think. But anyway, so what I wanted to do was I wanted to collate every single Doctor Who story and get um, as many writers as possible, be they professional, be they fan writers, be they semi-pro, be they people who've never written anything to do with Doctor Who at all, ever, um, and and to see what we ended up with. And, and I wanted to do something that was, if I'm really honest, something a little bit arty and a little bit oblique and a yeah. little bit um, something you had to wrestle with and play with so that it wasn't just um a rehash of um how can i put it uh, descriptions of, of what happened on screen in a particular story from the perspective of one character or whatever but something that just got into the heads of characters into the hearts of characters into moments that we could play with and corrupt and and, and what you do with these oblique strategy cards the oblique strategy card has some information on it and and it will tell you i've got a box in front of me let me grab one at random go right on. now and see what it says and I've, while you're grabbing that i'm just going to yeah. point out you challenged me and i've just realized <laughs> you challenged me to one of the stories that you've got in your top five didn't you <laughs> i did indeed because I, I i felt i was too close to it jr and and you know what i don't think anybody else wanted to do it well, fair enough. Sleep no more. Yeah, yeah. I picked a card and it says only one element of each kind. And then the next card says humanize something free of error. So what I did was I got to, I, I, I spoke to the writers. I managed to get together 70 different authors. Wow. And I would say to them, which stories do you fancy doing? And if they were available, I gave them three or four. Some wanted more, some wanted less. And then I gave them a card of instructions which they would then apply to whatever it was they wrote and and you know these things can be quite threatening certainly for new writers um and and for quite a lot of old timers as well because you're kind of given um a carte blanche although that's not strictly true is it but um you're given you're given the freedom to take what is in that instruction 
and apply it to, say, well, Terror of the Autons or Caves of Androzani and come up with something new and magical. And, and I had several writers working on um, the same story. Um, and, and it was very I made it very clear up front that it would be the one that fitted the tone of the book that would make it through. Yeah. Um, so, you know, th- there were many that didn't make make it into the book, not because they weren't very good, because they were all of a high standard. It's just that some fit a particular pattern. So, um, yeah, basically 275 Doctor Who stories. 70 writers, 16 doctors, he says. <laughs> <laughs> and each story had to be exactly 200 words long as well, didn't it? Well, is it was it 200? That's yeah, that's not really a virtue of the book itself. I think what I wanted to do was limit the amount of, of wordage that was sent to me. Obviously, I was doing this alongside, yeah, the yeah, yeah. So it took about a year just to, you know, get this collated. And, and, and because people are doing it for free, we're doing it for children in need, by the way, it's for children in need. Um, uh, we, you know, people were doing it for free. So, you, you know, a lot of people weren't incentivized to be quick with their deadlines. But I tried to stagger it through through different groups of, of writers at different stages throughout the year. Yeah. The two word thing was merely an attempt at limiting the amount of um of, of material I was sent, so some some of them run over two hundred words. There are two or three in there that I did. <laughs> there are four hundred words. Oh, but they, okay. <laughs> they, they bookend. They bookend the actual uh, run of stories. Oh, well, that's but, yeah, fair so We go from an unearthly child through to um, um, what was the Christmas one called? I've forgotten already. Twice upon, Twice a, upon a, a time. time. Yeah. Twice upon a time. But, um, and that takes up about. Hmm, 300 well not 300 250 pages and then after that there's a whole load of my reviews and uh articles from different websites and publications over the years including um a strident review of sleep no more which uh which is why i didn't want to do that in the book and i gave it to you jr yeah, but yeah. can i just say very quickly so paul can talk about his current book it's going very well um dig deep you know please please it's going to be available for a little while yet what I really want to say is um, there's all kinds of stuff in there, including, um, you know, alternative doctors, because we, we kind of done interferences with with what we know as Doctor Who in there. There's a new second doctor that's probably played by Diana Rigg. There's an uncarnation of Doctor Who in what I'd like to call season 6C. Um, there's uh, all kinds of stuff. There's the doctors. We meet the doctor's father, who's actually in a female incarnation, so that's good fun. Um, and we also give the Doctor his name, um, which you'd have to buy the book because I'm not going to tell you what that is right now. <laughs> um, but um, again, I just want to also say, JR, you were fantastic. I'm not saying that because you're hosting this, but you did great, great work. Paul Ebbs there set the tone of what I really wanted to achieve. He he took it to another level, which um, I was then able to use as uh, as demos to other writers. Um, Simon a, Simon A. Brett, or as I know him, Simon Brett, yes, uh, did a fantastic um, pastiche of the low Bowie cover with. Um, uh, Peter Capaldi standing in for David Bowie. He also did wonderful um, illustrations inside the book. But I really just want to list a few of the writers and celebrate them because they're the lesser known writers in the book. And they Go ahead. Yeah. Um, people who did great work and people who were there for me at crucial moments. Paul Ebbs, Alex Spencer, Andy Priestner, Warren Catherine, Sammy Kelsch, 
Matt Sewell, John Deere, James McLean, Craig Moss, Dan Rebellato, Georgia Ingram and Tessa North, all of whom, oh, and Sarah DiBella, who I've already mentioned, um, all of whom <laughs> did incredible work. They did new things with Doctor Who that I've never seen before. And, and I think that's largely because their knowledge of the show was um, not cursory. Uh, they, they, they were certainly viewers, but they, they weren't embedded in fan culture or continuity culture, shall we say. Um, and they, they did great striking work that spoke to me of, of, of wonderful new ways of seeing Doctor Who. And I really do think you should buy the book to read their work because it's outstanding. And also I'd like to say a big thank you to Barnaby Eaton Jones, who he was kind of my Brian Eno on the project. If I was David Bowie or however you want to look at it. Um, he, um, he was encouraging all the way and um, he let me do what I wanted to do. Didn't get in the way. And even if we disagreed on things, he said, well, do you want to do that? Do you really want to do that? And <laughs> if I didn't, I didn't, if I did, I did. And he was, a hundred percent cool all the way through. So that's Hublique Strategies. It's from Chinbeard Books. Um, it's got a huge amount of writers. It's got great new voices talking about Doctor Who. But each individual piece, which, as you say, is about two hundred words long, is a piece you should have to think about. You can't just dip in and hope you're going to get a little Who fix. I think the idea really is that you read each Doctor as a section. Um, and interpret and intuit what you can from it. You have to deconstruct this book. It's not a book for for the lazy. And, um, you know, I, I think it's had a lot of good reviews. And also there have been people who say, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Well, that's, yeah. that's why if, uh, if you don't understand it, you, you're probably not um, playing the game. You know, you, you've got to let it sit. You've got to yeah, let it sit. Yeah. And then you've got to come back to it. And that's oblique strategies. It's, it's intentional. Well, I can only say from my own perspective every single word you had to think what does this mean and does it matter and yes. that's how it works that's um, exactly how i work as a playwright and you and paul does when he's doing his tv mm-hmm. stuff and his novels and, and and you with your new new book you have to make every word count editing is where it happens yes and certainly who with it's gone sorry, sorry i was gonna say, say certainly with who bleak strategies i really valued the constraint of 200 words um and i took that i took that and ran with that and each one of my 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 pieces in it which are kind of like prose poems in a sense had in i i, I imply I, I imposed on myself absolute insane constraints where yeah. <laughs> some of them are actually only contain words that can be anagrammed from the title of the Doctor Who story. So the only, <laughs> so the only words I could, I honestly, it would take me a day and a day and a half to write two hundred words on these because the constraints I set myself. But it was so, it was so um, um, rewarding. To, to, to do that I, I loved doing it I loved making something so gnarly and so intricate um, it was it was a, a wonderful creative um, endeavor for me I really enjoyed it so thank you Elton for it's a pleasure I think me. the great thing that, that that you got Paul was that and we, we bandy these things around. What I wanted to make was an artifact. I wanted to create a piece of art. And I think, you know, it may sound pretentious. I don't really care. It's um, I, I wanted something that was just a little bit different from, you know, the, the usual sort of Terence Dick's pastiches. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 and something that people would, would just, you know, when they're reading it, think, what the hell is going on? I really have to think about this. What am I looking at? And Paul 
was at the, uh, the vanguard of, of the creativity on that. And also the poet Ira Lightman did fantastic and very strange, impenetrable work in there that even now I'm still trying to decode. But because I trusted him so much as a writer and I trusted Paul so much as a writer and all the other writers I've mentioned, I asked them to come back and do more and more pieces in the book. And and I think we created something a little bit special, a little bit magical. Um, yeah, I call it a box of fireworks, but uh, there you go. <laughs> That's who bleak strategies, which is like oblique strategies with a WH on the front. And it's from Chinbeard Books. You can buy it on the Chinbeard Books website or you can buy it on Amazon. And it all goes to, to children in need. We have to make that point. And speaking of things that are going to charities and worthy causes, Paul, the book that and yours is more recent. Yours is, as we record, literally just come out what a couple of days ago. Couple, well, the sixth, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, was it the sixth? Right. Yeah. Oh no, well, oh. I, I started. I started telling people that it was ready on the sixth, and it actually went out on Sunday. So yeah. Wh- whatever Sunday was, yeah. Two days ago. Oh, two days. Ago. Oh, you're right. <laughs> I, I, I only put the book together. What, what do I know? Yeah. Tell us about the book. Tell us what it is and, you know, um, how it came it's, about. It's it's a book for um, uh, Tommy, uh, the, the, the Tommy Dombavan Fund. Tommy is a, a writer, he's a very well-known writer, works with the Beano, written hundreds of kids' books, written Doctor Who, um, who a few years ago got cancer. Um, and although... Um, Maybe people like to think that writers who even have written a hundred books have, a, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds coming in. Where Tommy got the most of his his um, uh, income was visiting schools, um, and uh, because he was so ill, and the throat cancer that he got um, um, meant meant he couldn't speak properly. His jaw was locked, in effect. Yeah. Um, he couldn't do any more school visits, so he so he lost. So a lot of people got together and they they helped him um, uh, survive financially uh, while he was having his treatment because he's got a family and providing for your family is is not easy. Um, and then recently, uh, he got more cancer and he got uh, lung cancer. Um, he's still being treated for the for the other cancer, but he's got more cancer now. He's he's you know he's he's ramping up the cancer, um, and so he really needs more help. And so there's a few projects around that were helping him. But I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe I could do something to help as well. He's a he's a he's a really great bloke. He's a very talented man. And, you you know, you see a fellow writer um, struggling and you and you and you want to help. So I wanted to help. So what I did uh, was I, I I'm friends with um, a couple of guys who are very well known in the who world, Adrian Salmon and Martin Geraghty, who are Doctor Who uh, magazine artists as well as artists in their own right they did um they did uh the storyboard work for and the the covers and things for for power of the daleks the animation for that and the animation for um Sharda recently so they're they're guys whose images are very very well known um uh in the doctor who world i'm mates with them uh, we're good friends and i asked them if they would if they would uh, provide some artwork and they they did i asked elton because elton is elton now elton is a cracking bloke but what he didn't hasn't talked about at all today is his photography and on his facebook page over the last year or so he's been putting up the most joyous and wonderful pictures he's taken of toys in odd situations in his garden and and around the place and around his house that are their macro 
you know, to a great depth of field and they look fabulous. And I thought maybe I could get, you know, I could get some pictures from him as well. And it would give him a chance to, I, I guess, you know, connect with me creatively like I did for him with, with Who Bleak Strategies. I also asked Tommy, um, uh, because I, was, I said, look, Tommy, is it okay if I do this in your name? And he said, yeah, he said, yeah, I get, uh, uh, he was, he's been very grateful. I said, what are your top 10 Doctor Who stories, which kind of feeds into what we've been doing today. Yes. Um, uh, and what, uh, 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 and he gave me that list. And basically, last year, you'll know this, Jr. and you'll know this, Elton. I embarked on a on a, an insane thing to watch all of Doctor Who, every single episode of Doctor Who between January the first and December the twenty first last year. And then I would write about every episode. Three hundred thousand words later, because that's, <laughs> that's that's what Sledgehammer became. Sledgehammer, uh, this this diary was. It's going to form the basis for a book I'm writing about. Another book I'm writing about Doctor Who, and it it's it, it's and it, it may be the diary i think well the diary will be published at some point um uh, that's an exclusive um, <laughs> <laughs> um and and i i took my 10 reviews that for tommy's 10 stories and i put them together i also then looked about and saw that i had a load of stuff that that might people might be interested so some of my short stories but i also had um a load of scripts that I wrote um, as a as an amateur an amateur writer um, before I got into you know like writing the BBC book um, uh, I had my own company season twenty seven the the amateur something which were doing these Doctor Who stories so the scripts for those banging about and uh, the scripts I did for everlasting films um, thing called Augury of Death Crimson Scarab Prophet of Doom um, the House of Pain and the Stockbridge Terror. Uh, they're, 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 so, so the script. So, if you want to read more about Maxwell Edison, the script for for, for Stockbridge Terror is in there. The three episodes of that. I put in a, a poem, and uh, the probably the most exclusive thing in there is when I was working for BBV back in the day. I was commissioned to write a script for Colin Baker um, that was uh, uh, a solo one-hander for Colin Baker uh, called Revenant. And we were all ready to go with that. We were all ready to record. Uh, Colin was up for it. And then some personal stuff happened with, uh, uh, I, I don't really understand. I don't really know what happened. And in the end, the project fell through. I don't think there was any animosity or anything wrong. It just it just didn't work out. And then Colin wasn't available. So we scrapped it. So the script for that is in there as well. And that was a, that was a, you know, so that's kind of an exclusive. That hasn't been released on the internet. It's never been read anywhere else. The, the short stories that are in there have been in various fanzines um but i've collected them together but the revenant is a script that you know was written for colin baker was about to be recorded and in the end didn't get done so that's that's quite exclusive so i've put that together and I, that ended up all at 600 uh, 600 pages i got elton's photographs which are fantastic uh, martin and uh, adrian's um artwork is is absolutely fantastic in fact yesterday i received an email from somebody who wanted to buy one of the originals for an extra um uh, extra donation to tommy's fund uh, adrian did an amazing cover uh with a sledgehammer breaking through a wall to show daleks threatening the tardis and, and the hole he's made in the wall is in the shape of a 10 it's just i mean it's it, it, i it looks absolutely fabulous forget the words forget my stuff in it what what elton adrian martin have done 
has exceeded every single one of my expectations. So this is a free ebook. It's absolutely free to anybody who makes a donation to Tommy's fund. Uh, so if if you make, you know, what, what, what it doesn't matter how much you do. If you you could you could you know somebody's have somebody has have, have, have donated fifty pounds for it. Some people less than a fiver so it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you donate it's the just the fact that you donate so please help a guy out who's really struggling who's really you know it don't even worry about the book you don't have to have the book what it's really about is getting tommy through his treatment and helping his family survive while he can't earn so it's 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 just an act of compassion it's not charity in that sense it's support it's you saying there you go yeah, guy yeah you know yeah. take a tenner um, or whatever, but please, if you want a free 600-page book of brilliant, brilliant illustrations and photographs with some nonsense by me in it, um, <laughs> please, please, please buy it. Please, everyone, please. Right, I am going to say that you can get hold of this by yep. making a donation to the Tommy's Fund, um, yep. <clears throat> which, um, look, the easiest way I can say this is to say you can find stories about this on various websites including places yep. like we are cult or on the starburst magazine website itself under the headline yep. which is a which is a slightly errorful headline but nevertheless it says second volume of doctor who charity anthology announced it's under book news on the starburst magazine website you can find out exactly how you go about getting a copy of this, what you need to do, the links to the websites, everything there or anywhere else on the internet where there's a new story about this book. Tommy's Top Ten or Paul Ebbs. Google is your friend. You'll find it easily enough. That's how you, you go about finding out how to get a hold of a copy of this and mm. how you can make a donation to the fund. And so I'm really pleased with how it's gone so far. It's it's in terms of donations, it's far exceeded what I thought. I thought, you know, we might get 50 quid uh, if we're lucky. And we've done so much more than that. So um, I just just keep it out there, please, please, please. Brilliant. Right, guys, we have completely overrun the 60 minutes that we were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're up to. Yes, we're just about up to an hour and 40 almost. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and I am busting for the toilet, so I'm going to knock this on the head now. <laughs> Do I have to come with you? No, you don't have to come with me. Please don't come with me. I won't be able to go. I'm going to put my clothes back on now. Oh yes, he, yes. He's been That's on a video link. Paul, all the way through. Yeah, Paul's been on a video link, and yes, he is one of those people who prefers to podcast naked. Yeah, absolutely. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Thank Quiet. you for this, JR. Much appreciated. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Yes, been... thank you. And all I can say is an hour and 40 minutes has flown by. I expect it probably will do for the listener too. So anytime either of you want to come back on, just make sure you wear a T-shirt at the very least. <laughs> <laughs> Don't oppress me. <laughs> but until next week, I was JR. I was Elton. Uh, I'm Paul. And uh, we will speak again soon. 